0: There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is That Story. the story. I'm so excited about this series and what we get to do throughout this time, of training and equipping you with an opportunity to share the gospel with other people. And last week you got a booklet. And this week, I want to encourage you from the start. What I want you to do, pull out your smartphone and download the app. It's called The Story, and uh, you'll see just a little slide about it real quick. It's called viewthestory.com apps if you want to go to the website. Uh, Probably don't do it on Wi-Fi or it'll it'll crash, but if you uh, can download this, it's an incredible app. I'm going to show you a little bit about it today. But we want to train and equip everybody here with The Story. Um, In in Epic, we've been using the story booklet and the story opportunity to share the gospel for quite a while, and it's really empowered students to be able to share the gospel. One of the saddest statistics of our time is only 2% of Christians share their faith on a regular basis. Only 2% are actually taking the gospel and giving that as an opportunity to somebody else so that they can respond to Jesus. Jesus. Well, that lets us know that we have a ministry mindset, not a movement mindset. You see, a ministry waits on the pastors, the leaders, those people to do the work. And if you ever have somebody who's interested in Christianity, you're like, well, let me set up a meeting for you with the pastor. And ministries create bottlenecks because pastors only have so much time to meet with people. And so we don't want to, as MCC, be just a ministry that you're waiting on the pastor to do the work. Instead, we want to be a movement. We want to be a movement of God where everyone is equipped with the gospel. Everyone knows how to share it. And you're not looking for us. You're going, I got this. I'll take this one. Let me sit down with this person and explain the story to them. So we've agreed upon a tool that we believe could be phenomenal in helping everybody understand the Gospel and you see the difference is ministries have the potential of addition, movements have the potential of multiplication. We want to be a movement-style church. And so um, this whole thing, I grew up in church, and I've been around this reality my whole life, and whenever I was growing up, I felt like church was all about you know what not to do. And so much of it was like the stop it gospel of, oh, you enjoy that? Stop it. And everything was around like, don't do, you know, like the old saying of, you know, don't drink, smoke, dance or chew or go with girls that do. You know, that was like my whole life is like, hey, just don't do anything. You're going to be a good Christian. Well, the reality is that wasn't the gospel. The gospel is that we have been given a mission by God and we have a purpose in this life. And he has commissioned us as his mouthpiece to the world so that we may communicate the gospel. And this whole part of my life began to be the most fun adventure of anything I've ever done. And so I, I realized that people didn't just come to know Christ at church. They could come to know Christ anywhere as long as we're willing to share the gospel. And so throughout that time, I've seen people come to know Christ at Chipotle, Wendy's, Orange Leaf, soccer fields, basketball courts, driving someone home. I've even been walking the beach before and struck up a conversation and got to lead somebody to Christ. I've seen people on subways receive Christ. Like, it's crazy what happens when we just begin to say, you know what? This isn't somebody else's job. Because in high school, I got trained with the gospel, and then when I got into college, I was saying, daily, God, use me. Show me who you want me to share with. And it became this adventure of the faith, instead of just sitting back going, all right, be nice, don't do bad things. The key, though, is to try to figure out how to make this supernatural conversation feel natural. Because often, I mean, there, there's some people that are just kind of waiting on the moment, you know. And somebody's like, oh man, that sunrise is beautiful. Well, God made the sun. Wait, what in the world just happened, right? And it's like, I didn't know we were talking about that. And so it can easily become this awkward conversation where somebody's just waiting on a moment. And boom, I'm going to tell you, you know. And they kind of dominate. Um, but but really, we're meant to let natural conversations move two supernatural conversations. And the best way to do that is with questions and loving somebody and engaging in their story. And almost always what I do to set up this whole reality is I just sit down and I listen to somebody else. I say, tell me about you. What do you think about this stuff? What, what's been your journey? Tell me about your family, about what you love to do. And, and people's favorite topic is themselves. And so usually you just talk about them for a while. And then I usually get somewhere to share my story. But then ultimately I get to share the story. And so I want to show you a little bit about the app real quick, kind of what you can do. Real quick, if you downloaded it, don't hit the play thing in the middle. That's a video. It's going to start playing and making noise and all that stuff. However, the video is awesome. I encourage you to share it on social media. Let people see the gospel. I think it'd be really cool if MCC all kind of shared this thing and people are like, what in the world is this video? Because it explains the gospel powerfully. But what you do is you tap kind of the top left corner and it gives you some options and conversation is my favorite way to go through it with other people. And so what I'll do is I'll sit down and, you know, I've heard their story. I've kind of told a little bit of my story. And then we go into the story and I say, well, I want to hear your thoughts on the four core questions because there's four questions that build any worldview. The first one is how did it all begin? What do you think? Where do we come from? What's the purpose of life? Who made us? Were we designed or did we? were we an accident? What do you think? I just hear their story. Here's what I have to encourage from the beginning when you start asking questions. We do not engage in arguments or debates. We engage in conversations. Conversations create relationships. Arguments produce winners and losers. So we need to engage in listening. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? And so... How did it all begin? We enter into that conversation first. Then uh, we ask, what went wrong? Where did death, disease, pain, destruction, where did all that come from? And just listen to their perspective. Is there any hope? What do we have hope for? Or where do you place your hope in? Do you think things are going to get better? Are they going to get worse? Where do you find hope in this life? And then what will the future hold? What's out there after we die? What do you think is waiting on the other side? And we get to enter into this conversation and just get to hear their perspective. And then we jump into the story that we find in the Bible. And the story is creation. That's how God created and he made it. And there's a whole other, last week you got to talk about creation. And then this week we're talking about the fall. And, and then, you know, next week you're going to learn about the rescue and then the restoration. And this kind of frames your discussion. These four core topics answers to the four core questions. You see, every story gets its power from the story. I love movies. Any other big movie fans out there? All right, I'm a big fan of movies. Uh, we as a family just watch Kung Fu Panda 3, which is pretty good times. And uh, what we always do as a family, after we watch movies, we always ask, okay where did you see the story in that story? And we just began to discuss, like, hey, what'd you see? And so after Kung Fu Panda 3, we did that, and our kids are like, dude, that was cool. I was like, you know, good was fighting evil, and that was cool, and families were reunited, and and that was cool. And then, then he kind of talked smack to the guy and said, chitty, chitty, chat, chat. I was like, okay, they don't really have to do with anything. But then um, then I kind of said, okay, but did you see the moment when when the bad guy was attacking the village and it looked like all hope was lost and then someone was willing to give their life to save everybody else, what's that remind you of? They go, yeah, dad, that's Jesus. That's just like what he did. Except for the panda said, skadoosh. You know, but anyway, so we we were were talking about and having this blast of a conversation. Um, And so the reality of every great story is it has this sense of starting with... All is well, there's a rise in action, there's a climax, and then there's a resolution. Just like the story has creation, the fall, the rescue, and the restoration. And so every story gets its power from the story. But today we're going to talk about the fall. And, And the fall is this interesting concept that I think often there's two main camps when it comes to it. See, there's some people that when they share the gospel, they love this part. And they're like, that's right. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. You need to turn or burn. You need to get right. or You're going to get left at the rapture. All right. And so they have this like, they're just ready. And they kind of have this hate that it feels like in the conversation. Then you kind of have the other side. This is where a lot of. People like to stay is they're like, well, God loves you. God has a good plan for your life. You know, he just wants to add on to your life and he wants to make you happy and and give you good things. Here's the problem. Both are totally wrong. Both are missing the actual gospel. Because we need to be careful to show the fall and sin as a reality so that they actually understand why Jesus came. It's kind of like this. Uh, Imagine, so I've been working in chemistry lately, all right? And uh, imagine I told you today, I found the cure for heptostrepocholacus strand 43. Yeah? You guys are pretty excited. Not really at all. You don't really care. (laughs) Um, You're like, good work. But what if I instead told you, hey guys, today I have really bad news. In the duct system today, something went wrong and there was emitted an invisible gas... That actually had anybody who breathed in the air of MCC today contracted heptostrep strand 43 and it's fatal within the week. But take heart, I've found a cure. How much different do you respond to that reality now? You're like, oh, um, yes, please, I'll take that. And you're going to be like ripping out my shirt saying, I need it now, you know? And so you're wanting that reality. And often, one of the things we do with Christianity is we go and tell people, Jesus loves you, before we let people know that he really shouldn't. In reality, none of us deserve the love of God. We're far from him, but he still loves us. So how do we deal with sin, man's depravity, with love and grace guiding the conversation? Well, that's what I get to teach you today. And so we walk through creation And we basically kind of walk through that conversation. There's a lot of different perspectives out there on how exactly God created and scientifically what happened. And you can get lost in six-day literal or you can get in progressive creationism or evolution. All that debate could go on. Here's what I do. I simply say, here's what I know. Logic leads us to an uncreated creator. No matter what you believe or what you think started it all, you have to answer it with something. And I believe the prime mover was was God. And the Bible tells us that he created. He began everything. There's an intelligent design behind creation. So then we jump into the fall. The Bible teaches that there's a literal place called Eden where people were given a choice to either follow God or follow their own way. And so often I jump into this portion and I ask somebody, hey, do you know the story of Adam and Eve? And I can't tell you the number of times that I've done this with teenagers in this post-biblical generation that we live in. And they've looked at me and said, no, not really. Or often they'll say, yeah, I've heard something about an apple and a snake or something. But they really don't understand the significance of it. And I think often we don't understand the significance of it. And so we're going to dive into that story, that portion of the story Today, You see, Genesis 1 and 2, they set up this beautiful creation moment where God has made everything good. And there's Adam and God. And then at the end of Genesis, um, you see God introduce a, a commandment and then Eve. And, and Adam's like, whoa, man, this is good. And he likes that creation. And, but the commandment at the end of chapter 2 is the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God had given them two commands. One was make babies and fill the earth. You see that a little earlier. And then two is don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's saying, hey, I want you to be free. God's goal in creation was freedom and enjoyment. And that leads to unity. He wanted them to be free to enjoy everything in the garden. He's like, get you some of all that. It's all yours. Enjoy it. It's great. It's going to be awesome. And then he's saying, I want you to be unified one with another and one with me. This is the beauty of creation. And God enables them to experience everything. His command was for their good and it was to to test their trust and their loyalty to him. So why did God create the tree? Well, I believe God was trying to give a choice to mankind other than God so that it would be genuine love when they chose God. I feel like God probably feels, um, I I feel like my my wife probably feels like what God feels like in this because often she's making dinner and uh, the kids are doing it like We've been, we've bought them toys and games and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, just enjoy the games. Stop holding onto my leg while I'm trying to make dinner. Like stop fighting with each other. You have everything in the world you can do. Just don't do this one thing. And they're like, I think we'll choose that one. All right. And so they, they're always getting in trouble. It's not fun for anyone when this is happening. And then Genesis three introduces the conflict called the fall. And normally when I walk through this, I walk through it kind of quickly with people. But today I want us to understand the depth of this story a little bit more. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 3 verse 1 is what we're going to look at. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That the lord god had made and so the serpent was the manifestation of satan again it doesn't say snake later he's cursed and his legs and arms kind of fall off so we know there's probably some type of dragon iguana figure we have no idea all we know is that satan was manifested in this serpent and was speaking to the woman he said to the woman did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden See, the first thing the enemy does, he tries to come in and distort God's word. He tries to make it sound unreasonable and restrictive. Like, "Is he God's holding out on you. You don't understand. He doesn't understand your life. You should be able to do whatever you want. And he tries to come in and, and, and distort God's word and his commands and make them seem like they're not for freedom and enjoyment. And to make us think differently. And it's kind of like if somebody walks in and says, does your boss always tell you what to do? And all of a sudden you're like, well, I'll show them. And no, he doesn't. I do whatever I want, you know. And so you kind of have this feeling. And then, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree. So again, first of all, she's realizing the freedom that God did give them. But then, yeah, he did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, which for some reason she adds to the command, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the enemy tries to come in and he tries to come in and say, hold on, you're meant to rule. You know better than God does. He doesn't know you. He's not for you. And so he tries to come in and bring deceit so that he can create doubt. And his ultimate goal is division. He wants to divide us from God and divide us from each other. And the most classic military tactic is what? Divide and conquer. So he wants to get us isolated on our own and he wants to destroy us. And he's questioning, he's going, death? Nothing God created dies. There are no consequences here. Just eat the fruit. Come on. Do what you want. Are you really going to let somebody else run your life? Are you going to take charge? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, And he ate. You see, Eve kind of lingers by the tree and begins to think, is God right? Or is the serpent right? I think it's unsurprising that the first sin for woman was getting caught up in something that looked good, right? And I think it's also unsurprising that the first sin of man was being passive and not doing anything about it. And so what happened, well, the reality is Eden still echoes today. And many of us are in the same battle with the, the, the enemy trying to deceive and create doubt and division. Father is calling us to freedom and enjoyment and unity. What happens next? Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. See, something interesting that I noticed when I prepared for this sermon is I never really thought about this before, but what did they already know before they ate of the tree? They already had knowledge of good, right? They already had full knowledge of everything that was good. What they did not have knowledge of was evil. And now for the first time, they realized they were naked because they they now had a concept of how somebody could use that against them. They had a concept of selfishness. They had a concept of comparison. They had a concept of lust. They had a concept of perversion. And their eyes are open to this reality and they're like, oh no, I'm naked and they have to hide from that point forward. And for every one of us, we have still experienced this separation that the enemy has brought and distorted so that we're divided from each other and from God. And that's what we see next. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which before this moment was the best part of all creation. They waited for God to come and it was so good. But this time, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So again, division, separation happens between God and man and man and wife and And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of? I don't think God's like, what? Huh? I didn't see this coming. Um, Instead, he's entering into a conversation with Adam. He's trying to give him an opportunity to be honest, to to be real with what happened. But how does, how does Adam respond? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the first thing that happens with the disobedience of man is he doesn't own up and take responsibility. He blames and he actually blames two people. He blames the woman. But he also blames God. Like actually it's your fault. If you actually were for my freedom and enjoyment, you would have never let this happen. And so often we blame God as if he's the one at fault. And the truth is it is us that has wrecked this world. And we go on and and so he goes to Eve. He's like, all right. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And The woman owns up. No, she doesn't. She said, well, it's the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. I can only imagine then God goes to the serpent and he's like, well, you see what happened was, I have no idea kind of what happened from there. Um, But when when we see this story and we see all that's going on, there's three core buckets that we see. And as you read the story, so you can do the conversation tool or you can actually read the full story. It kind of shows it in three main buckets. And the first one is... Um, disobedience. And, and what we see here is that the Adam and Eve ate the fruit deciding that they not God would determine right and wrong. See, mankind disobeys God and they, they say, I want to be God in pride. Satan fell from heaven because he wanted to be God. In pride, man and woman break their relationship with God because they wanted to be in charge and they wanted to determine what was right and wrong. And in pride still today, man and woman try to rule over each other instead of submitting to the one who created us. And this is the fracture that broke the world. And this disobedience continues to splinter throughout all of creation And it breaks everything. It's hard to even realize what's right and wrong because our hearts are wicked and broken. Jeremiah actually said it this way in in chapter 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I can verify this. I have toddlers, okay? And and all you got to do is be around a toddler for a little while and realize I did not teach them. To scream every time a toy was taken from them, okay? I did not teach them to punch their sister whenever they didn't get what they wanted. That was all built in there. So we have this disobedient sin problem that has been passed down to us, but that we also do. We've inherited disobedience and we all disobey. And Romans 3 is where Paul comes to and kind of lays out sin and its effect on the world. And so Romans 3.10 lets us know this. There is no one righteous. No, not one. You see the standard for heaven. Actually, it's easy to read that verse. Well, of course, yeah, none of us are perfect. I mean, come on. Well, here's the deal. The standard for heaven, if you want to get to heaven, the standard for heaven is perfection. The only way you can get there is if you're a perfect person. Remember about you? it leaves me in a bad spot. Because this just said there is no one righteous. No, not one, not a single person. Later in Romans 3 and verse 19 and 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world had account- held accountable to God. In other words, there will be no blame on judgment day. You cannot point to, well, my mom, my dad, my culture, my world. No, no, no. He's saying, you know, this basic law. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so often at this point, I will use kind of a 10 commandment approach just to see where somebody is. And the reality is we're all in the same spot. And so what I say is I'll say, and we'll just kind of do it together. Have you ever told a lie before? Uh, it says, thou shalt not lie. Anybody? Yeah? Maybe? If you didn't, raise your hand. I don't believe you. You're a liar. And so, um, so it says, thou shalt not lie. It says, thou shalt not steal, even anything small. Pen from the bank. Cheating on a test. Um, writing down hours you didn't work. The truth is, we've all stolen. And then Jesus redefines them in the Ten Commandments. He said, if you've ever lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have we done that? And it's for vice versa as well. And then he said, if you've ever hated someone or been angry with somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. So God has this perfect place called heaven and we are lying, thieving, adulterous murderers at heart by our own admission. God cannot let us in. Every one of us are morally bankrupt on our own. We don't have a chance at knowing God because we are wretched and we deserve a consequence. And so you have disobedience and then you move to consequence. And, and the consequence in the fall is woman has pain in childbearing and in relationship with her husband. Man would experience pain in his physical labor. Creation is subject to the pain of death, disease, and sacrifice. And, and we see in Romans 6 later that the wages of sin is death. And that's why is introduced the sacrificial system. Because see, every time they sin, they're earning death. And death has to be covered by life. And so blood represents life, and it would cover their sin. And they have to do it over and over and over again. And and the sacrificial system was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that might come later. It's kind of like this. Often people think, well, all we have to do is say we're sorry and God will understand. Well, actually, no. Because every time we sin, it's like an act of theft against the, the king. And and so imagine I stole a million dollars from you and your company. And and I went before the judge and the judge said, Did you steal it? And I'm like, Well, there's a lot of evidence, so I'll plead guilty. And he he goes, Well, you're guilty, you're gonna have to do some time. Oh, but judge, I'm sorry. Oh, you're sorry. Oh, well, where are you free to go? Would that be a good judge? Not at all. Why? You want your million dollars back, right? Somebody's got to pay that fine. That needs to be repaid. And how in the world are we ever going to pay our million, billion, trillion dollar debt of sin? You and I don't have a shot. The consequence is huge. We are separated from a holy God. Where could help come from? Who could pay for all the sin of the world? We'll talk about that next week. At the rescue. So, um, the final one is, so we have disobedience, consequence. Then the last one, when you read it, says need. That we have this deep sense of need. And the truth is the fall is really bad news. And the person that you're sharing with, as you walk through this, should have an Isaiah-type moment where they go, Woe is me, I am undone, I don't have a chance. There should be kind of this, oh no, sense of desperation in the midst of the gospel. Because they need to know that they cannot help at enough orphanages or do enough good things to earn their way back to God. Theologians have said it this way, it is doubtful that anybody has truly been saved that didn't first know that they were lost. And one of our problems when we share Christ, we always, often try to fix people, make them more moral. We can't expect non-Christians to live Christian lives. They need Jesus. And so we often give that cure. Jesus loves you before letting them see that he shouldn't. But when we walk through the fall, when we help them understand sin rightly, here's the main point. Bad news makes good news amazing news. You see, the bad news is, a recap, that every one of us are spiritually and morally bankrupt. None of us have a chance at heaven on our own. Every person in here, you are destined for hell because of your actions. Like, that's a reality. And every person you ever interact with does not have a chance at heaven without Jesus. And there's a very real consequence. And we have a huge need. And if I just left you with the bad news today, I'd kind of be a jerk. So I just want to let you know today, if you are feeling that today, and maybe for the first time you realize how bad, not just the sins of the world are, but your personal sin has offended a holy God. And you want him in your life, I want to lead you through a simple prayer that you can receive him today. So if everybody would close your eyes and bow your head, if you want to receive Jesus today, I want you just to repeat this after me. Lord Jesus, I need you. I thank you for dying on the cross in my place for my sins. You paid my debt, and I receive you as my savior. And my Lord, take control and make me who you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's you today and you prayed to receive Christ for the first time, I want to celebrate with you and I want you to come forward. And I want you to pray with the prayer partners before we leave. But hold on, we're not done yet. Because there's a whole nother group of us in here. And if we really understood this reality of the fall and the brokenness of creation, I think we as the church need to repent of our casual approach to church today that we have been too lackadaisical, we have played the game, we have come in and said, well, what am I gonna get out of this? Instead of saying, God, use me to advance your gospel. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I made life about my comfort. I'm sorry I'm worried about what people think about me. I'm sorry I'm worried about being a Jesus free God, I wanna use my life for your kingdom and your kingdom alone. God, forgive me, I need you, Jesus. And I pray that that would grip our souls today and that we would say, Jesus, I need you to change me. I need you in the midst of my fall, in the midst of my wickedness. I am gross in your sight, and I'm sorry for that, God. But I, I cast all of my life onto you, Jesus, because you saved me, and I'm so grateful that you love me. I don't know why you love me, but I want to give you everything because only you are worthy. And may we as the people of God rise up and be a movement of hope, of life. And may we realize that every person we interact with is facing eternity to either be with the Savior or not. I've heard it said, if you know that there's a real hell and there are people that don't know him, how much must you hate people to keep it to yourself? May we rise up and be a movement of the love of God that just lets people know. The reason we're training you in the story is because we believe you can do it. We believe that you're in a sphere of influence that God has set you up to advance the gospel in this generation. And we want to be the people of God that rise up. But first of all, we have got to realize our sin and cling to Jesus with everything we are and say, Lord, I need you. I need you to change me. I need you to be my king. And so, we're going to end with the song that you sang already. And we're going to sing it in a whole different light. You're going to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, with the depth of my heart, I cry out because my need for you is way more than I ever even realized until I walk in today. I need you, Jesus. And so, may you rise and worship him fully in this time as we close.